Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Catherine Stewart, who is a journalist and an author. Her books include The Good News Club, The Christian Rights, Stealth Assault on America's Children, and The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Just to begin with, you, you wrote The Good News Club 10 years ago. There was recently, uh, we saw a lot of furor around the the striking down of Roe v. Wade, but there was another Supreme Court decision that happened at about the same time, which was that a decision was made regarding prayer in public schools. And the way the commentary I saw around this seemed to indicate that it was like the beginning of a new war by the religious right to uh, start making their way into schools. But the Good News Club tells a slightly different story about how long this war's been going on. Could you tell us what the Good News Club was all about? Sure. Well, good news clubs are after-school religious clubs that convert very young children into a deeply fundamentalist form of the Christian religion. And uh, for many years, listen, in America, we're all free to practice our faith, if any, in uh, our homes and houses of worship and in public parks. Uh, we can rent businesses to have church services in them, uh, like movie theaters and any other number of places. But public schools are uh, supposed to be non-sectarian, that is, uh, neither supporting nor denigrating any particular religion or religious viewpoint, because public schools are open to all. And America, as you know, is a very religiously diverse society. And if we're, you know, our schools are to function effectively in a diverse society, our state, our publicly funded schools, they, you know, we really need to keep our sectarian agendas and our political agendas out of them so that they feel comfortable and, and open to all families. But these good news, so for until 2001, these good news clubs operated largely in people's uh, churches and homes and sometimes in public parks. But because of a 2001 Supreme Court decision pushed by the religious right, they started uh, planting these, these in public schools. And look, they target children in the very earliest years of their learning. A centerpiece of their program is called the Wordless Book. It's used to convert children who are too young to read. And then they use their position, the, the leaders of these clubs use these, you know, their position in the school to convince these five, six, seven, eight-year-old children to recruit their, uh, their friends to the club. And they often um, offer candy or other uh, prizes for recruiting their, their peers to the club. Now, here's the thing about little kids. They can't distinguish between an activity that takes place in their public school and one that is supported by their school. They think if it's happening in their school, it's what their school wants them to believe. 
And the Good News Club leaders know this. So this is a, the Good News Clubs are just really one small part of a much larger assault on public education in America. And I've got a lot to say about that. But I want to say also that the the assault on public education is really just one small part of a much larger attack on the foundations of America as a constitutional democracy. Could you speak about the relationship that these organisations have with the public school system? Because it seems that on the one hand, they want to tear it down. And on on the other hand, they seem to, you know, they want to... uh, latch on to the legitimacy it gives them. Absolutely. Both of those things are true. You know, listen, the the religious right has long-standing hostility to public education. Jerry Falwell set the agenda. He's a right-wing, sort of very well-known religious leader here in the United States. And he, in 1979, he said, I hope to see the day when there are no, no more public schools Churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. And he was reflecting a widespread stance toward public education, which is, after all, non-sectarian. But in America, the religious right, or what we often call today the Christian nationalist movement, they see anything that fails to affirm their viewpoint as somehow hostile to it. So the idea that a public school, state-funded by the taxpayer, should remain religiously neutral, that is, again, neither affirming nor denigrating any particular religious viewpoint, they see as hostile. I think this is a movement that is, frankly, deeply insecure about their own religious beliefs. I think sometimes very extreme religious religious belief systems are hard to sustain. So they they find themselves in, in a position of extreme hostility toward anything that fails to affirm their viewpoint. And that's where a lot of the hostility to public education comes from. So this is really reflecting a longstanding hostility. And they actually sort of have a three-pronged strategy, which you alluded to in your question. The first is to push their programs into the public schools so as to make them reflect their religious viewpoint so the the schools will no longer be non-sectarian. They're not just their religious viewpoint, but also a, a very distinct political viewpoint. There's a sort of marriage between fundamentalist religion and far-right politics in America. And I, I suppose the same thing might be happening in Australia. So that's one part of it. They want to push their programs and their viewpoints into the public schools. Number two, they want to uh, weaken public schools by fostering lack of trust in public education in all of these different ways. And number three, they want to siphon public money from the public schools and direct them toward their programs, such as religious schools. And uh, there was a case in the Supreme Court that decided this last couple of weeks, Carson versus Macon, which is another step toward doing just that. Uh, because of that decision, if you know it, 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 it practically mandates the funding of religious schools in certain types of circumstances. And it's just one of several Supreme Court decisions that has sort of furthered the religious rights agenda toward directly funding their religious schools. Catherine, you referred to, along with these uh, attacks upon the public education system and the public health system, battles over history and how to interpret US history in the place of Christianity within it. So can you explain why it is that the frequently expressed claim that the United States is a Christian nation and was intended to be is both erroneous and dangerous? Well, our, thank you so much for that great question. You know, the short answers <laughs> are, first of all, that America was uh, not founded as a, an explicitly Christian nation. Our founders were very clear about that. They proudly and explicitly founded uh, and created the wor- world's first secular republic with a separation of church and state 
a term that flowed from Thomas Jefferson's pen. He's one of our uh, important founders. He uh, penned the uh, founding documents and he, uh, some of our founding, key founding documents, including uh, Declaration of Independence. And listen, our founders were very, I would say, heterodox uh, group. Some of them were deist, which was considered a heresy at the time, and is sort of a pantheist. They sort of uh, adhered to kind of a pantheistic religion, definitely not the Christian faith. And others were more uh, traditionally uh, religious, and others still, people like Benjamin Franklin, their religious viewpoint shifted over time. But what they clearly and proudly created was a, a government by the people, for the people, of the people, by the people, and for the people, and not intended to further any particular uh, religious agenda or the uh, agenda of any particular god or pope or anything like that. So that is uh, how our nation was founded. And listen, you know, because of the separation of church and state, precisely because of that principle, America is, has a vibrant and very diverse religious landscape. We have uh, a friend of mine uh, contributed to a book called The Handbook of Christian Denominations, and uh, they found many, many hundreds of different sort of views of Christianity. Christianity itself is an incredibly diverse uh, faith. And then, of course, we have representatives of probably um, most, if not all, other forms of faith in our country. So the separation of church and state is a principle that has served not just a, it's not just for atheists, it's served many religious people very well over time. But the religious right in America, uh, sort of Christian nationalists or religious nationalists, they really want to, I would say, hijack the meaning of our country. And so they, they're determined to hijack, you know, and bring it back to a time that frankly never was. And so in order to do that, they need to change our history. And so they've relied on the work of people like David Barton, a pseudo-historian whose work has been discredited time and time again by many, even conservative Christians. His, uh, he wrote a book called The Jefferson Lies about Thomas Jefferson. And the book was actually withdrawn by his publisher, Thomas Nelson uh, Publishing. It's a Christian publisher, and they often publish conservative Christian authors. They had to withdraw the book, the first book they w- they'd withdrawn in their history. And they said it you know, lacks fact. It's just um, you know, full of, I don't think they used the word lies, but they, the word, they used the word errors. <laughs> so he's a sort of well-known fabricator of a Christian nation myth. But his work is really essential to the movement because it tells the story that they want to hear, which is a story that doesn't reflect the truth of our past, but reflects their desires for America's future. The separation of church and state, which is you know, in the US Constitution, we have these very conservative judges on the Supreme Court now who refer back to the, the Constitution as being you know, this immutable document. And yet the, when it comes to deciding these religious questions, they seem to be taking a slightly more liberal approach to how they uh, uh, make those decisions uh, in one sense of the word. What's the logic behind the the decision-making that we've seen in relation to church and state in the Supreme Court? Well, given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, I would have to say there's nothing liberal about their interpretations of religion. There's been an, listen, the, 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 the judiciary has been captured, and it didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. We have a six to three Supreme Court conservative uh, versus liberal that is grotesquely unrepresentative of the views of our country. And I'll just give you an example. Something like 70 to 80% of Americans support 
some access to abortion beyond just the life the life of the mother uh, or even life and health of the mother. 55% of Americans identify as explicitly pro-choice and an even larger number support uh, abortion access on in cases like, you know, mental health of the mother or perhaps in the, you know, up to 20 weeks or things like that. So in some sort of pre-viability or some kind of thing like that. So the most recent decision that the Supreme Court has taken overturning Roe versus Wade it flies in the face of, first of all, uh, human dignity. Let's just, you know, to start, because it uh, doesn't allow certain, I mean, you know, we had a 10-year-old, t- 10-year-old child in Ohio who had been obviously a rape victim who was forced, could not access, this is just in the last week or so, could not access abortion in that state. And so they were, uh, she was transported to Indiana, which still allows uh, for abortion access, um, certainly for an underage rape victim. I mean, this is something that I would probably guess that, you know, 90, 90% of Americans view as barbaric and grotesque. And yet the Supreme Court, uh, this grotesquely unrepresentative Supreme Court in overturning Dobbs has unleashed this type of scenario across our country. And you know, listen, the the anti-abortion movement in America really just sees this as a start. I mean, this is the kind of thing you don't think of happening in America. You hear about something like that and you think, what barbaric country would treat its children this way, its rape victims this way? And yet this is actually happening in our country. I mean, so, you know, I want to go back to this, explaining how this capture of the court took place over time. Years ago, leaders of uh, the religious right recognize that they would never be able to push through such unpopular views, such an unpopular agenda for America if they had to rely on the voters, on the ballot box. So they determined uh, to take over the courts. So you had people like Leonard Leo, who started an organization. He didn't start, I'm sorry. He took a lead in an organization called the Federalist Society, which is a sort of, mm, they, they play a very high role in grooming and promoting ideologically conservative, ultra-conservative uh, candidates for the courts. And Leonard Leo became a sort of point person for money that was being poured into this in it, uh, this effort. His, his organization and others affiliated with it have uh, directed hundreds of millions of dollars toward uh, various sort of initiatives that are intended to push a kind of far-right agenda in the courts. There was a really terrific investigation by the Washington Post uh, journalist named Robert O'Hara who did a really fantastic exploration of Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society, and his related organizations. And then, you know, he he's an ultra-conservative Catholic. The issue of abortion one of it was one of his big animating issues, but other issues sort of have go- gone along with it. And on the sort of Protestant and evangelical side, other organizations have sprung up, such as the Alliance Defending Freedom, the First Liberty Institute, uh, uh, Liberty Council, Pacific Justice Institute. I mean, there are many other organizations that have pursued a kind of right-wing agenda for the courts. And frankly, there's nothing quite like this right-wing legal sphere on the left. I mean, we do have the American Civil Liberties Union, but they actually play a role in seeking to defend religious rights in in many cases, expand the rights of religious speech. You know, the organizations on the sort of, when I say left, I mean broadly liberal, moderate left that exist to try to preserve some of our founding principles and, uh, and jurisprudence in this area 
are uh, frankly far less well-funded and have not sort of managed to catch up. I mean, the the right-wing legal sphere has, you know, been decades in the making, and we're really seeing the consequences of that today. So I, I guess when I said liberal before, I'm, I'm more meant uh, uh, in the sense of being a bit loosey-goosey. So you have these justices oh, yeah. who are uh, originalists, but if you're a, if you're a constitutional originalist, how can you? How do they look at the constitution, which very clearly has this wall between church and state? And what, what's the logic that they then use to make that the decision that uh, they should pull that wall down? Yeah, of course. Yeah, their their claim to originalism is just gaslighting. They, um, they're, they're, they're very contradictory. I mean, just look at this recent spate of decisions. They say, oh, well, you know, the right to abortion is not anchored in, in, a uh, uh, history and tradition. It, we can't have, you know, we can't have any, you know, laws that, that in the constitution, we can't, you know, this doesn't reflect our history. And 50 years ago, there was no right to abortion. And then all of a sudden they're sort of taking on the right to privacy. I mean, this is really flying in the face of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are three of our principles that have guided our, our uh, country, uh, applied imperfectly, of course, over time. But, you know, the arc of history, as many people have, have believed, would bend toward justice. And uh, this, is a, uh, this is a court that seems, uh, whose majority seems determined to, to roll that back. You touched on it just before, the, the, this persistent myth that the religious rights sprung out of the Roe v. Wade decision from their righteous anger. What was it that the, they were actually angry about before, you know, in the six years between the Roe v. Wade decision and them actually starting to agitate on the issue of abortion? That's a great question. I mean, let's look at what was happening when Roe v. Wade was passed, which guaranteed women a constitutional right to abortion in 1973. So at that time, most Protestant Republicans supported a liberalization of abortion laws. Ronald Reagan, he was a, a Republican governor, and when he signed uh, uh, the most liberal abortion law in, in to, he signed the most liberal abortion law in 1967, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a, a major evangelical uh, organization, they issued statements supporting abortion law liberalization in 1971 and 1974. Conservative politicians such as Barry Goldwater supported abortion law liberalization. His wife, Peggy, co-founded Planned Parenthood in Arizona. Planned Parenthood is a reproductive health organization that offered abortion. I mean, you can't imagine the wife or spouse of a conservative politician doing that today. They would just be run out of uh, Washington, D.C. and whatever state they were representing. Betty Ford uh, called Roe versus Wade a great, great decision. And when she did so, she was reflecting the views of most Protestant Republicans. But there was a new movement that was arising at the time. They called themselves the New Right. They felt that the Republican Party had become too liberal, too soft on communism. They were deeply upset about various developments in American society, among them the civil rights movement. They thought that it was appalling that uh, religious schools that were had been started by people like Falwell and Bob Jones, these uh, very you know popular in the among conservatives, popular preachers would be segregating. They, they were segregating their schools by race, and they were religious schools. And and the Internal Revenue Service, which governs America's sort of taxes, was starting to look at these schools and say, why are we giving them tax breaks? They're segregating. This is not okay. But these folks thought that these preachers had a right to segregate by race, and they thought integration was really not uh, 
they called it against God's plan. I mean, uh, Bob Jones, who's this you know preacher, he called he said he called racial segregation God's established order, you know, uh, and other preachers in the same uh, vein uh, affirmed their support for segregation in all of these different ways. Billy Graham published a he uh, a sermon called something like "Is Segregation Scriptural?" and and he affirmed at that time then yes it was scriptural it was according to God's plan. But they knew that sort of coming out with a stance against uh, integration in religious schools would be very unpopular. And they needed another issue that they were going to use to ignite their new movement. They really wanted this hyper-conservative counter-revolution. So they went down a laundry list of uh, issues and they looked at things like school prayer, but they were also at the time becoming allied with a group of ultra-conservative Catholics. And they knew the school prayer issues were going to alienate that ultra-conservative Catholic cohort. And they looked at things like the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, but it was already sort of going down in flames. And when they came down to, and they couldn't deal with this, they couldn't uh, use segregation because, you know, most Americans thought uh, segregation, racial segregation uh, was appalling, and it is. So, you know, they needed sort of something more popular. And when they got down to the issue of abortion, they it was like a light bulb went off. And they thought, huh, that could work. And the reason is because it tapped into people's anxieties, about family, about uh, various issues that were happening in the, in the world, is about changing social orders. Uh, and they thought, well, if we could sort of, it was an issue that already uh, many Catholic ultra conservatives were already persuaded about, and they thought they could bring about uh, conservative Protestants. And also, as one of the members of the New Right said, some of our fringe fundamentalist friends, he actually recognized that there was a sort of fringe, you know, fundamentalist group out there that wasn't uh, involved in politics. So over time, they really purged pro-choice voices uh, from the Republican Party. So the the sort of anti-abortion movement that we're seeing today that's so dominant among the religious right, it's a modern creation that was created for political purposes. Catherine, one thing that struck me through reading the book, The Power Worshippers, was I think at some point you uh, question whether or not many of those you describe as Christian nationalists could properly be designated conservatives given the kind of radical nature of many of their views and and the implications it has for US society, but also many of the struggles that are being fought are being fought in the name of freedom and and liberty and religious liberty. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how the, the Christian nationalists, how the Christian right has deployed language in order both to bolster its own case and to attack its opponents as uh, ungodly or um, degenerate or some other kind of, you know, especially bad quality. Yeah, you know, you're right about this. They're actually really, uh, Christian right and the Christian nationalist movement has been really good at uh, using language strategically. So the anti-abortion movement became the pro-life movement, um, which of course it's uh, it's not. They simply don't care about the lives and health of mothers and uh, the decision making of uh, most private decisions of families, the consequences of their policies will end up uh, killing many women. You know, they've been very good at tweaking that. I think the word conservative, as you pointed out, is really a misnomer. This is a radical movement. It's radical in its aims. It's radical in its policies. You know, I think we're still trying to struggle with the language to describe what we're seeing in America today. Because Christian nationalism is not a route to the past. And 
it's really not a route to the future either. It's a way of concentrating power in the hands of a radical new elite that wants to sort of bubble wrap itself in sanctimony and insulate itself from any democratic check on its power. Catherine, I noticed recently that one prominent right-wing activist, Matt Walsh, has uh, taken to calling himself in his Twitter bio a theocratic fascist. Uh, Does this sort of mask-off moment have any sort of significance, do you think? He said it. (laughs) He said it. You know, it's really funny. I I write for a lot of different publications, and uh, I'm often told you really can't use words like fascist because it raises too many questions. And, you know, I, I think that we can be pretty effective in just, you know, sometimes uh, being restrained in our language, because just pointing out what they do, it kind of speaks for itself. But if they're starting to uh, identify themselves, or if there are some who are identifying themselves as theocratic fascists, well, they said it. It's probably a little bit being tongue in cheek. He's probably, you know, a lot of what they do in, in public, or certainly on Twitter, is try to, you know, get attention get liberals upset so that everybody will start tweeting about it. And that draws more attention to themselves and that elevates their careers. You know, I go, I've been doing a lot of research in this movement for over 12 years. I've been, I started researching this movement in earnest in 2009. And over the years, I've gone to a lot of right-wing conferences and strategy gatherings and summits. That's how a lot of, I I do a lot of my research. I, I think it's one thing to hear them uh, when they're speaking on major media or when they make statements that are sort of facing, you know, outward facing, but it's another thing entirely to, you know, be in the room when they're talking among amongst themselves. And one thing you do see at some of these gatherings is that the politicians who are affiliated with the movement who are allied with the movement, you know, they're not really the ones in charge, but they are, um, often the sort of lesser ones are jockeying for power. They're trying to, get uh, attention and trying to, you know, they know that the more attention they get, the the better it is for their own careers. And so sometimes they'll say really extreme stuff to try to get attention, get the liberals upset, get everybody talking about them. Here we are talking about Matt Walsh. (laughs) You've been attending these sort of events for over 10 years now. In that time, have you seen a shift in the messaging or has there been a consistent narrative throughout? Absolutely. It's, It's changed over time. And you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Road to Majority Conference in Tennessee. It's an annual gathering of religious right leaders, uh, key strategists, and politicians who are allied with their movement. And I mean, I, I want to point to say, I'll say just three things that I think have changed over time. The first is that the rhetoric is getting more extreme and harder and harder in every direction. Democrats are referred to, you know, uh, in, in, in incredibly dehumanized terms. They're not just people with a different point of view. They're demonic. Um, I've heard that they're, you know, governed by Satan. They're trying to inspire chaos. They were characterized as an enemy within. Trump, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, you know, the greatest threat threat facing America is not our geopolitical ally, uh, geopolitical foes as bad as they are. The greatest threat to America is the enemy within. I mean, this is really appalling. And it reminded me of something that I saw recently on Russian state TV. I was watching their, you know, Russian state TV program, one of their news programs where everybody's sort of a mouthpiece for Putin. 
And one of their very popular announcers, he said, those Ukrainians are demonic, they are little devils, they are satanic, and they're godless, and you good Orthodox soldiers, you need to finish them off. I mean, this is the language of genocide. And this type of language, this total dehumanization of one's political opponents or foes or people in another country or uh, another ethnicity or whatever, this is kind of language has preceded some of the most disgraceful, uh, appalling episodes in human history. And so it's quite shocking to see this kind of language now being utilized in these spaces. So that's one change I've seen, that sort of dehumanization, uh, frankly, of, of fellow Americans, and it's incredibly dangerous. Number two, I have seen the inclusion of a movement called Seven Mountains Dominionism in a much more forceful way. So Seven Mountains Dominionism is a form of uh, dominionism. Dominionism is the idea that um, uh, Christians have a sort of biblical duty to sort of take over society and, you know, to to, um, to sort of take control of society and and take control of uh, government. Well, Seven Mountains Dominionism is a variety of that. They they say that Christians are of a certain type, of course, this sort of ultra-conservative type, uh, or radical type, I should say, should seize control of what they call the seven molders or mountains of culture, which include, you know, things like government, education, mm, entertainment, uh, the law, things like that. Uh, and, and in order to what they cast as, you know, take dominion back from Satan, that's what they call it. So they, and they're also often, it's a very popular form of theology in Pentecostal circles. So for a long time, Seven Mountains Dominionism was really kept at bay. It was considered so fringe that the more mainstream religious right representatives sort of, you know, might throw its adherents a gratifying wink, but they didn't invite them to their conferences. They didn't give them a platform in the way that they are now. So at last year's Road to Majority Conference, there was a breakout session on Seven Mountains, and that was pretty surprising. At this year's conference, there were not one, but two. And I thought that was, uh, you know, that's a change that we're seeing. And, you know, part of that has to do with the fact that the religious right needs to attract new followers. They need to draw new people into their movement. And Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity are these very fast-growing movements. And movement, I think the farther-seeking movement leaders, people like Ralph Reed, who is a very astute and seasoned uh, religious right leader, he has been making a real effort to draw in that cohort in order to expand their movement and its reach. Um, that's another trend that I've noticed, um, and that's that's been quite pronounced. Catherine, you've made reference to the new right, as it was called, uh, the late seventies and the early eighties, and the alarm it expressed over uh, what it thought as or perceived as being the decline of U.S. politics and society, and various forms of political and social degeneration. In more recent years, we've seen something else called the alternative right emerge, and it was um, suggested that it might have played some important role in allowing Trump to be elected. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between the uh, Christian right or Christian nationalists and the alt-right, especially in terms of its teachings on questions of race and uh, white nationalism. That's a great question. You know, the alt-right and the Christian right are not 
the same. There's a lot of overlap. So if you know, you know, if you look at a Venn diagram, you're going to see some overlap in those circles, but they're not exactly the same. I mean, there's the Christian nationalist movement is is trying to actively recruit people of color, in particular um, Latino voters. Um, as I mentioned earlier about Seven Mountains Dominionism, both of those seminars that I attended or break I, that I viewed, there's this um, seminar and a breakout session. This last Road to Majority, are there were majority of people of color speaking in, at those uh, at those seminars. So you know the further seeker seeking leaders of the religious right are trying to attract that cohort, but they also know that this coalition that um, I would say the uh, uh, Trumpists know that they need that coalition, so they'll try and sort of the, the racism in a way is baked into the to the structural like a structural racism is baked into the Christian nationalist movement because even as they're recruiting leaders of color, in particular, you know, pastors of color in order to get their congregations. You know, they know if you get the pastor, you can get the congregations. They are driving support for politicians who are supporting, you know, race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression. And also some of the sort of very ultra-reactionary religious messaging that they are uh, promoting, it derives philosophically from the kind of religion that justified segregation. And even before that, the kind of theology that justified slavery. So pro-slavery theologians, you know, before the, you know, civil war and around the time of the civil war, they believed, believed and preached that America should be an authentically Christian nation with our laws based on the Bible and hierarchies enshrined by God, you know, men over women and white people over black people too. Now they religious right leaders have by and large abandoned the whole, you know, white people over black people too, at least in public, but they certainly still adhere to what they call um, you know, male headship. And there's a kind of through line between that sort of pro-slavery theology theology, the idea that our law should be rooted in in their very reactionary reading of the Bible and the way they believe that laws should be governing our country today. Uh, another question that occurred to me, Catherine, in reading through the text, as well as the kind of bewildering array of projects that seem to be taking place in the United States, is on the one hand, there's a lot of money being poured into the movement to, to popularise its you know, policies and perspectives. But I wondered also if you could talk about, I guess, in, in, in thinking about the alternative right, so-called, um, it emerged during a certain period in which the internet is, is said to have you know, a profound effect upon developing political consciousness among various audiences and markets. And it's been deployed by some you know, bad actors, I suppose. But critically, it hinges upon the ability of political organisations to collect and process data that enables them to, in, a, in, you know, in quite a precise sense, uh, determine what an individual a social media user thinks about, how to appeal to them, and this in turn has become a, a big business. So to rephrase, can you talk a little bit about the influence of money on um, Christian nationalism and how Christian nationalists have deployed uh, internet technologies and new technologies to influence public opinion and to shape political markets? Yeah, you know, I think to a largely underappreciated degree, much of the activity of the movement is aimed at getting access 
to public money. And the movement is also very well funded by uh, very, very well, some very wealthy people. Look, the movement has three sources of money. The first is uh, contributions by some very wealthy individuals and often members of uh, extended uh, families. So I'm thinking about the Prince de Vos family, the Wilkes brothers, uh, and so many other of the you know very wealthy funders that I write about in the Power Worshippers and the Good News Club. Second, and, and a lot of that money doesn't just come through the funders directly, it comes through donor-advised funds, such as the National Christian Foundation, which is, a, it's called a, like a donor-advised organization that raised something like $1.5 billion in 2020. So they the money is not, in, when it goes through these donor-advised funds, it's not directly traceable. It, the money flows from individuals and family foundations into a donor-advised fund, and then it goes into you know the different sort of features of the Christian nationalist movement's infrastructure, the right-wing policy groups, the legal advocacy groups that we discussed earlier, the sort of networking initiatives and the like. And then that's the first source of funding. And the second source of funding is small dollar donations. You know, I, a lot of the movements, uh, organizations, uh, the features of their infrastructure, like the policy groups, their daily activity is all about raising small dollar donations from the rank and file. So, you know, something happens, uh, you know, around abortion or same-sex marriage or something like that, or, you know, some of the newer culture war issues that they've been litigating, like, you know, some of the LGBT issues, they'll use those issues to fundraise small dollar donations, whether it's $10, $30, $100, whatever. So that's a second source of funds. And that raises a lot of money for them too. And a third source is public money. That um, decision that we discussed earlier, Carson versus Macon, which is trying to get uh, money for their schools for, you know, this two, the two, uh, the main, the, the case was involving some schools in Maine, these religious schools that are Incredibly uh, discriminatory. Even even the um, the janitor has to be a, a born again Christian in these school in that school, and the, and yet they want you know money to be able to public money to be able to promote that. Another one of the schools promotes the idea of male headship and said something you know pretty mean and and bigoted about uh, other another faith in one of their textbooks, but they want you know money for their initiatives, no matter how for their school, certainly no matter how. Uh, discriminatory their teachings or hiring practices. So, you know, the and then there are other ways in which they're trying to get public funding for churches and and uh, other sort of faith initiatives not just that aren't uh, don't have have to do with public education but have to do with other in in in, in all of these other ways. So, those three sources of funding, you know, are, are all very important to to the movement and how it operates. Now, Catherine, I'm no theologian, but I seem to recall there was some long-haired bloke a little while ago who uh, had a few things to say about uh, rich men entering the kingdom of heaven, and maybe <laughs> would have had a few things to say about, uh, you know, oppressing people and the like. The Christians have come in for a bit of a rough trot on the show lately. Could you tell us a little bit about the sort of resistance to this stuff oh, yeah. coming from within Christianity? There is a huge resistance from um, people of faith and from many different Christian groups. It's been really hard for a lot of people. I think, frankly, most Americans 
understand uh, most American Christians reject the politics of division and conquest that this movement represents. And that's something that perhaps we should have made clear at the outset. I think most American Christians think of their religion as having to do with something about care for the soul and being kind to their neighbors and not forcing unpopular bills through gerrymandered state legislatures. I mean, it's really been hard. So, I mean, there's so many different groups that are trying to, you know, work in opposition. And I'll just name a couple of them. There are the Red Letter Christians and Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which is an initiative of the Baptist Joint Committee. There's uh, Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign. There are, and there are, you know, groups like Catholics for Choice and um, many other groups on the Catholic side. There are just so many. There are interfaith groups that are, you know, trying to work at cross purposes. But the, the the religious right in America is not the equivalent of the religious left. First of all, and when I say left, I mean sort of middle, moderate, liberal left. It's sort of a sort of spectrum, right? Or even there are many people who identify as Christian conservatives who are absolutely opposed to the agenda of uh, religious nationalism in America and absolutely opposed to Christian nationalism. But they tend to be more, you know, these various groups are not, first of all, they don't have the money, anywhere near the money of the religious right. They haven't developed the infrastructure over decades, which the religious right has. You know, let's remember the religious right is, you know, really the, the politics are leading, not the theology. So this is not a cultural movement. This is a political movement that is exploiting religion for political purposes. And so over decades, they've invested in all the features of modern political campaigns, networking organizations that get the leadership on the same page. They've got, you know, religious right strategy groups and advocacy groups and legislative initiatives and data initiatives, a vast messaging sphere. The religious, quote, left has doesn't have that on the same, anywhere near the same level. And they're also very reluctant to operate through churches. They really understand and respect the the notion of separation of church and state, you know, um, and uh, they also don't want to sort of tell people how they should be voting, that they don't feel like that's their job. But the religious right has no trouble whatsoever operating through religious infrastructure. They actually have these pastoral networks where they get all of these pastors on the same page. They sort of bring them together, thousands and tens of thousands Organizations like Watchmen on the Wall and Church United and Faith Wins and these other initiatives, they get these pastors together, often in swing districts and swing states, but they'll do it all around the country. And they give them messaging tools. They'll give them voter guides that are, when you look at these voter guides, it leaves absolutely no question how you're supposed to vote. And they'll, you know, tell the pastors, you know, take as thousands, they'll show up with tens of thousands of these and say, take as many as you want. They give them sermon starters. They give them videos to air at church. They give them, you know, they offer to come and do their own presentations at church because they know if you can get a pastor, you can get to buy into this. You can get, you know, much or if not most of their congregations. So the religious left is really not the equivalent of the religious right, but it's really important to recognize the opposition of all of these Christian leaders who are appalled by what's happening in our country, feel like their faith is being hijacked and exploited, and they're right. Catherine, just finally, you wrote in the Good News Club that your fear regarding Christian nationalism was not so much that they might succeed, but the damage they would do when they inevitably fail. Uh, That was 10 years ago. 10 years later, do you still feel the same way? 
Yes, but I think that those words require a little bit of qualification. <laughs> Thank you for reading, first of all. I'm, I'm, you know, very grateful to you for that. America is incredibly religiously diverse. Christian nationalism makes America more divided, not less. They will never succeed in uniting America as sort of one country where everybody has the same faith and everybody's sort of on board with their sort of radical agenda and where they sort of, you know, seize and control of the entire country. But they, they are, they have seized control of our uh, Supreme Court and, and much of the judiciary. But the division that they cause as they fail is absolutely making America more polarized, uh, ungovernable. And look, the future is uncertain, but history tells us when you have the kind of chaos that we are really starting to experience uh, the sort of ideological polarization, polarization in terms of, you know, between what people want and, and what our laws are, are, are saying we can and can't do. It, it creates a, a more chaotic environment. And history tells us that, you know, that what often happens is it, it makes the ground ripe for a kind of strong man to rise up and say, I can fix it. I alone can fix it. You know, again, you know, I can't predict the future and no one can. But if you look at the way Trump was hailed and promoted by this movement, I think it speaks to the uh, authoritarian impulses of this movement. They don't believe in democracy. They think that the pluralism and equality, the principles of pluralism and equality that have guided our democracy, again, imperfect over time, but have you know guided us um, over time and have been these wonderful principles to work toward. They, th- they find these principles abhorrent. Uh, they they want to create a new type of order and, uh, frankly, a more authoritarian theocratic order. And Trump gave them everything they wanted. They hailed him as a king, as a they compared him to a biblical king like King Cyrus or King David, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. At this last Road to Majority conference I attended a few weeks ago in Tennessee, Trump gave the keynote speech and he was hailed as a as a you know, hometown heroes, returning hero. They don't believe in our, in our, in our uh, v- voting, in 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 vote, in the vote. I mean, it's really this is the the basis for our democracy, and they don't believe in it. They they um, don't accept the consequences of any election whose votes they don't happen to like that doesn't go their way. That's radically anti democratic. It's authoritarian, and uh, and I do think that that's a danger of our time. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Kath S. Stewart. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the conversation. Well, Andy, that is our show. It is, Cam, but before we go... We have a few more people to thank from the Radiothon. I have the final tally. These are the last people that we need to thank. On behalf of 3CR Radio, on behalf of us, who now have raised expectations for how much we are capable of fundraising... Very few thanks, I think. Is that right, Andy? No, we still thank them. We do. Uh, so we would like to thank Sean. Reg. James. Paul. Alex. Andres. James. Andrew. Jessica. Juliet. Celeste. Damien. And Clive. And Ben. But a very big thanks to Andrew, who... Yes. Came through uh, with a thousand bucks. Just, I think all of the cams who donated collectively was like four hundred dollars. So mm-hmm. Andrew's absolutely wiped the the t- 
table with the cams. Uh, thanks to one particular Andrew. So thank you very much. 3CR and us appreciate it a lot. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, bye-bye. Yes, take care. We'll talk to you then. And bone by the telephone. Lift that receiver, I'll make you a believer. Take second best, put me to the test. Things in your chest you need to confess. Yes, we deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. Alright, boys, reach out and touch faith! Cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.